Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Uh, Let's bow our heads and pray once more. Lord Jesus, we thank you for an opportunity to, um, after five weeks away, resume our study in the book of Luke, where we get to see with clarity not only who you are, but who we are in light of you, what you've called us to in a life of following. Jesus, we pray that those who have not yet followed you see the winsome, beautiful gain that there is in the gospel, and that those who do follow you are so motivated to live in radical, humble, and costly ways, for they know that they can never outgive what they have been given in the cross. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. So, I'm a sports fan. Football season is underway, and watching film is an important part of an athlete's life. Sitting down and watching your game tape from the week before lets you slow down, focus, learn from your mistakes, and make steps to better yourself. There's an infamous story of one uh, former number one overall draft pick who was a quarterback, and as good as he was in college, his growth plateaued in the NFL. And he kept saying he was watching game film and doing what he needed to to correct his mistakes, but the offensive coaches thought that maybe that wasn't happening. And so what they did is they gave him blank tapes. And he took those blank tapes home, and he would show up the next day for practice, and they'd be like, did you watch the game film? He'd say, yeah, I watched it. Totally ready to apply all the things that I definitely did watch at home. And it was clear that because he was unwilling to learn, unwilling to put in the time, that his success quickly plateaued and he was washed out of the NFL. And as we continue our series in the book of Luke, we're entering one of the big thematic turns in Luke's gospel and actually the largest literary unit of the whole book, which is Jesus's journey towards Jerusalem. That is his journey towards the cross. After gathering his disciples and kind of teaching in northern Israel, he now sets his face to the south, sets his attention to the cross, and as a result, his instruction and interaction with his disciples begins to heat up. Jesus is preparing his disciples to understand the cross for themselves, what it means to them, but he's also preparing his disciples to understand what cross-shaped, kingdom-minded ministry looks like for when Jesus has left and entrusted his church to his disciples. And as the energy picks up in the book of Luke, what we have today is a film session for our own good. In this passage, we see something which, just like this NFL player, is to be neglected only to your own detriment. What we see played back for us today are four clips where the disciples miss the heart of true discipleship where they don't understand fully and completely what it means to follow Jesus. And as we look at their mistakes, God has preserved it so that we might study it, that it might instruct us, correct us, and encourage us to make us fit, which is where we end up in verse 62, fit for the task at hand, able players in the game of following Jesus. And we're going to be, if you have your Bibles today, in Luke chapter 9. It'll be on the screens. There's also Bibles available at the info desk. If you don't have one, we'd love you to take that home with you as a gift. Our main point in Luke 9 is going to be this. Disciples, that is, those who follow Jesus, are humbled by the name of Jesus and driven by the gain of Jesus. 
we are both humble and motivated. In Luke 9, verses 46 through 50, we see two stories of what it means to live and to do work in the name of Jesus. And in looking at this, we're going to see that disciples are humble and not arrogant. And then secondly, as Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem in 51 through 62, we see Jesus' own commitment to the cross, his own motivations for the kingdom of God. And in so doing, we're going to see that disciples are steadfast and not vindictive, and disciples are kingdom motivated and not apathetic. And so I'm going to begin reading today, but I'm actually going to begin with the end of the text Stephen preached last week, as that context is really important for us to better understand what's going on today. So if you have your Bibles, we are going to begin in the second part of Luke 9, verse 43, and we're going to read through verse 50. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they, that is the disciples, did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, among you all, is the one who is great. So here we have Jesus' second prediction of his death in the book of Luke. His second in this exact chapter, chapter 9 in the book of Luke. And the disciples are wrestling to understand that. And to a degree, we can never fully understand Jesus unless we understand the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And given that that hadn't yet happened, it's reasonable that the disciples themselves are failing to grasp what Jesus is talking of. But what they do understand at this point is that in some way, shape, or form, Jesus is apparently going to be missing from them at least for a season. And they are too arrogant to ask Jesus about that. Let that be a warning to you. Ask Jesus if you feel dumb. Because if not, you get exposed for posterity's sake in history as being dumb. Because what happens here is we see that right after Jesus says, I'm going to be gone, they begin to argue amongst themselves. And what's the substance of their argument? Who's the greatest? Who, when Jesus is going to be gone, is the biggest, the baddest, the boldest, the smartest, the most leaderiest of all these disciples who will be the worthy heir apparent to Jesus himself. And this is where Jesus introduces us to their first mistake and point of instruction for us today. And that is that disciples are humble and not arrogant. Right after Jesus predicts his death, in verse 46, it says, an argument arose among them. That word in the Greek is really this measured observation. They're forming thoughts and opinions. They're designing themselves against one another. In other words, it's probably like this. I imagine this is exactly what went through their, their ancient Near East minds. Andrew pulled up his Instagram page and then he pulled up Judas's Instagram page and he realized he was getting far more interactions than Judas. He was far more of an influencer at that time. Philip Reminded Matthew of who was older and therefore ought to have more respect in the area. 
Peter began talking about how stellar he was at leading in the home and how robust his family worship was. James went to Simon and he said, hey, Simon, what was it like a few verses ago when you failed so hard at casting out a demon while I was on top of a mountain hearing audibly the voice of God the Father, seeing Jesus glow like a radiant Rudolph? What was that like? Tell me more what it's like to fail. They all begin to measure themselves against one another. They begin to assess, to form opinions, and to reason. But actually that same word of argue is translated in, later on in that where it says that Jesus himself reasoned regarding not their words, but their heart. As they formed opinions with their words about where they stood in contrast with one another, the king of the universe reasoned their hearts and knew exactly what was going on. You see, Jesus fulfills what we see in Proverbs 20, verse five, where he says, the purpose of a man's heart is like deep water. In other words, who can see the bottom of it? There are waves and ripples, and we can never fully know what's behind that. But the man of understanding will draw it out. And here is the man of understanding par excellence. And oftentimes, as we walk through life, we can disguise our true purpose, our true intents, and our true motivations amongst all of you with our words and with our actions. But Jesus, with measured clarity, sees the sinister reasoning of our hearts. Jesus knows, even today, how your negotiations, how your leveraging, and how your schemes are often schemes in order to establish what? Your own greatness. Your own opinion in the eyes of other men. How many of you have played the game when you're ordering at a counter of giving your tip, but then the person at the counter turns away? (laughs) What do we do? We're like, "Uh, hold on, look back at me. (laughs) I want you to see this because I want you to know that I'm tipping. I want you to know. I want to be vindicated before your eyes. But then as these 12 men are arguing about who's the greatest, Jesus interrupts their external audit of awesomeness by calling a child to his side. And he says this in verse 48. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is one who is great. And so in Greek, it literally means, who, reads, whoever is micro is megas. The least is the greatest. And what does this mean? Well, here it looks at face value like receiving a child. And it's not that in the ancient Near East during this day, children were disgusting or distasteful or to be scoffed at. It's that children, specifically in this day, were loved because they were kids of somebody, but they were culturally unimportant. They didn't contribute to the well-being of the collective whole. To be praised by a child is to receive nothing of any particular noteworthiness. And that means if you wanted a position of specific value, if you wanted to be made much of, you got as far away from childcare as you possibly could. You wanted your service to be for big things in big ways, and you wanted the affirmation to come from big people who have big meaning. If you've ever gone to an amusement park, you've encountered signs that say, you must be this tall to ride this ride. 
My daughter was telling me how this coming summer she hopes to go to Silverwood and to be that tall. (laughs) When we wander in this world, our world has those signs everywhere. You must be this big to be great. But what Jesus is showing his disciples here is that true greatness, greatness in the eyes of God, is never quite tall enough for greatness according to the world's standards. And so if you walk through this world trying to measure yourself on the world's marks, you will always be lacking in regards to what true greatness is. And therefore you will always be frustrated with a mark you cannot reach and an experience of never measuring up. No amount of worldly greatness is ever great enough to say, aha, I feel appreciated. I feel accomplished. And speaking into that fear we all have in our own heart, Jesus uses this example of a child as if to say this, true greatness is not the man who runs the Fortune 500 company. True greatness is the man who cleans the toilet of the man who runs the Fortune 500 company. This is scandalous to us. We cannot understand it. We could repeat it because we can do that. But we can't really understand it. But here, I can tell you what would happen if we did actually understand that we would fall into another ditch. We would all go and buy all of the toilet brushes and grab all of the children and we would scrub all of the toilets and we would have the most amazing daycares and we would say, look at how much better I am than you. Nothing sparkles like a Tyler toilet. And you see, our culture loves, and this is a common grace, our culture loves to care for the vulnerable and the neglected. But this too becomes a carnivorous campaign of arrogance. We brag of our service. We boast in our generosity. We wear our charitable causes like badges of honor, which separate us from those self-indulgent commoners. And when that happens, it's not that we've humbled ourselves. It's just that we've changed what we're arguing about. We've changed our own measures of accounting But you notice what Jesus says. This isn't a race to receive a child for the fame of your name. But Jesus says very carefully, whoever receives a child in my name. This act of service, this denial of worldly greatness isn't done out of a fame for our own name, but out of a fear of the name of Jesus. We don't pursue these ventures because of what it means to us before men, but because of what it means to Jesus before God the Father. And this is the humble test of discipleship that you can apply to your own life right now. How easy is it for us to measure our service, our participation, and our value in the kingdom of God based off the visibility and vibrancy of where we serve, who we are, and what we do? I'm immensely grateful, and so are the other preachers who preach here, that often we're standing out in the foyer and someone comes up and encourages us after proclaiming God's word. But how many of you have gone to Jack, who prepared coffee for us this morning, praised him? How many of you have praised the kids' ministry workers who have done that? And we naturally do that differently because we perceive different value in those places. When you consider what it looks like to serve Jesus, do you think of only those things which can be done famously and visibly? 
Do you find certain positions more nobler than others, more fitting of an individual who's been a Christian as long as you've been a Christian, who knows the Bible as well as you know the Bible, or have gifts like you have gifts? You see, it's one thing to have one of you praise me for my preaching. It makes me feel good. It's less praiseworthy if my own daughter sitting in the kids' ministry says, thank you, Dad, for playing with me. But our praise is not to be in the eyes of men, but in the eyes of Jesus. If we're focused on who is praising us here on earth, we will always have our priorities out of line. Charles Spurgeon, a great British pastor, once had a training center for men who are prepared for ministry. And he told all of his men this. He says, give me the man around whom children come like flies around a honeypot. They are a first class judge of a good man. Lord has blessed our church with ample children who roam around like a horde of wild dogs after service. And I myself am guilty as soon as you're dismissed by the service leader of making haste to go talk to big people about big things. Only seeing these kids as having value if they're on the stage where they're not supposed to be or they're crumbling up Panera bread into as many pieces as is humanly possible with such skill and tenacity, it makes you wonder what is next. Maybe they only have meaning once they're baptized or become members. Maybe if their parent is an influential person in the city or in the church. But may the Lord cure our church of such a blindness. We have always at this church, and I hear often at almost every church I've encountered, had problems of getting people to care for and disciple kids during the church service. But I pray that our kids' ministry directors have to turn people away from caring for our kids because this church knows full well of serving people and in places in which the world places little value because they know where true value lay. And the value is not merely in serving the kids and the value is not merely in coming in and participating in quarterly cleaning and the value is not simply in proclaiming the word of God. At the end of the day, the value isn't in those who serve to amass a track record of service, but as those who are willing to do small things to small people of seemingly small value who show they value not their own name and their own visibility, but instead the name of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And to receive the name of Jesus is to receive the one who sent him. It is to have the full value of the greatness of the Father himself. And here's the distinction of Christian greatness. Our greatness is never how we're perceived by the amusement park meters of the world, but how we are perceived in Jesus before the Father. And how might you have certainty today of your greatness in the kingdom of God? by looking and seeing the places where you value what Jesus values, even if the world holds a different metric. He is our greatness. And when we have the affirmation of God, we have the privilege of being so burdened by the weight of glory that all of our life starts at the bottom because we are wet with the weight of glory. Worldly benchmarks constantly lead us to fear others or to desire to trample under others for our own accomplishment. And we see that because Jesus says, whoever is least among you all is greatest. And John realizes this. He's like, all right, well, there's not a distinction amongst us all. And then he does the wonderful thing that we often do. 
but what about that guy over there, right? Look back again at Luke 9, verse 49 and 50. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, I want to be clear here because we live in a pluralistic age who says truth is relative, and this is not a passage on the relativity of truth. This man was not a heretic. This is not saying that churches shouldn't care about sound doctrine. This isn't saying that you can do whatever you want to do as long as at some point you mention the name of Jesus Christ. It's not that the church shouldn't be concerned and guarded against false doctrine. And we know this because just as the disciples were affirmed for doing something in the name of Jesus so too is this man doing something in the name of Jesus. The point here is that there is a genuine follower of Jesus exercising a genuine level of faith who is inside of the truth that these, the disciples themselves have. So if the issue isn't in his doctrine, what is the biggest issue here? Well, John makes it clear, doesn't he? If you look back at verse 48, he says, He does not follow with us. He looks different than us. He's apart from us. He isn't one of us. He's a competition to our own brand. He's a threat to our own exclusivity. We are the disciples. I was with you on the mountain. And the potential offense of this man to the disciples is elevated all the more if we remember what happened last week, what we saw the disciples failing to do. There's a man who had a demon-possessed son, and look at what he told Jesus in Luke 9, verse 40. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Have you ever been frustrated with how someone else is following Jesus? And you say, I don't think I would do that. I don't think I would look like that. Have you ever been frustrated with how someone else is pursuing holiness, saying that's so legalistic? That seems too licentious. Have you ever been frustrated with how another church is preaching or how your coworker shares the gospel? What's often revealed in our frustration is that we are only upset because others are doing what we ourselves are not or are succeeding where we ourselves are failing. You see, an arrogant heart never celebrates growth in others but only seems to criticize that which is different from us. Now it's important here to see that this man probably would have been more fitting and more well-served if he were with this group of disciples. After all, the bridegroom is here. Jesus is in the flesh. He's talked about this a lot through the book of Luke, that things are different when Jesus is here. This man would have learned more, would have been instructed more had he been with Jesus. But look at what Jesus adds to this in the book of Mark as Mark describes this exact same scene in chapter 9, verses 39 and 41. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink because you belonged to Christ will by no mean lose his reward. So what's the difference between Jesus and John? John sees somebody who's probably not where he should be, who's apart from the people who he should probably be with, and John simply wants to crush him. 
Jesus sees someone who is probably not where he should be. And he says, but if he's genuinely seeking to serve me, if he's genuinely believing and working in my name, he will not soon afterwards appear so different. Jesus trusts the process of sanctification over time, knowing that as this individual who is genuinely laboring in the name of Jesus and trusts the name of Jesus, that growth will come to help bring greater clarity and fidelity to Jesus himself. See, how often is it that we treat others with a level of gracelessness, expecting their walk with Jesus to look just like our walk with Jesus without realizing that Jesus gave you grace to grow? He gave you the grace you need to understand and grow in what it looks like to work and love in the name of Jesus. There will always be people in this church who having the same doctrine as you and laboring to the same end as you might not look just like you, but this is where we remember the goal of discipleship is not to produce another you. It is not to produce people in your name but it is to produce people in the name of Jesus. It is his name in which we are saved and it is for his name we serve. You see, often we puff ourselves up in comparison to others and here the humility of following Jesus elevates the name of Jesus. My wife often asks a question to women she's discipling, which is a great point of application for us today. And her question is this, is if you are not a Christian, what in your life would be different? How would your finances be different? How would your job be different? How would your relationships be different? How would your sex life be different? Think about that in your life. If the name of Christ were removed from you, deleted on your phone, how would your life be any different? And if we can delete the name of Christ from our lives and have no marked difference, then perhaps regardless of what we say, maybe our life shows we are living for our own name and not the name of Jesus. That when all is said and done, what comes through is the name of Tyler and not the name of Christ. But if that's you, take heart and repent. For there is more held out for you in returning to Jesus than there is in the frustration of trying to live for your own glory of, or of fearing what Jesus would do if you come back in true humility. And this scene is, this is seen all the more as we transition to the next phase of Luke's gospel. And I want us to pick on this transition sentence that Luke gives us in verse 51. He says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So this is where Bible study is really important. So let's look at this verse here. And at first reading, we might just read, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. What's important here? Jesus turned, took a hard right, and started to go south. But why did he do that? Did you notice it? He set his face to Jerusalem because the days were drawing near for him to be taken up. What does that mean, taken up? It's the same root word that Luke uses to describe Jesus' ascension in the book of Luke. It means Jesus knew his ascension back into glory was coming. Jesus knew that he was soon to accomplish salvation, atoning for the sins of all who would hope in him, that he would defeat death by being buried for three days, that he would be risen from the dead by the glory of God the Father, 
that he would prove himself in various witness for a span of 40 days after his death, that he would ascend bodily and gloriously to the right hand of God the Father, not looking merely like Jesus in the flesh, but looking like the transfigured Christ we just saw on the mountaintop. He knew that what lay before him was the restoration of all things, the elevation and glory of his name, a kingdom prepared for the world's greatest king. And he set his face to Jerusalem. That phrase, set his face, is kind of an idiom in the language that means he was determined. It's not that his GPS said, turn right now. It's that he was fixed, consumed, determined to go to Jerusalem, even though he knew what awaited him even though he knew a turn towards Jerusalem was a turn towards his greatest humiliation, his greatest pain, his spiritual isolation, and his physical death. You see, correcting our arrogance is hard. Following Jesus is hard. The cross would be a terrible experience in Jesus' flesh. But behind our temporary trials is the hope of greater gain. And in Jesus' motivation for the gain of glory, we find hope in the midst of our own trials. This idea is important as we look at our next two scenes, beginning in Luke 9, verse 51 through 55. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said to the Lord, Do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, that is James and John, not the city, and they went on to another village. And so here we see on account of our gain in Jesus, that disciples are steadfast and not vindictive. And a little bit of context is helpful here, because this is the first time in the book of Luke where we interact with the Samaritans. That theme will come out a little more over the next few weeks, the next month specifically. But what's important for us to know now is that Samaritans were not fully Jewish. They were Jews who had intermarried with some of the other nations. They were called half-breeds and they were treated as such. They were racially inferior and yet at the same time kind of competing with the Jews. And on top of that, the Samaritans and the Jews had a disagreement as to where the true place of worship was. They all wanted to worship God because again, they were half-Jewish. They wanted rights to the Jewish promise. And so the Samaritans worshiped God on Mount Gerizim and the Jews worshiped God in Jerusalem, which was where Jesus's face was set. And so here we perhaps learn a little bit more about why these Samaritans turned away Jesus. Here was a Jewish man who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah who was destined for the Jewish religious center. And they say, get your own lodging. Find your own place to live. And Jesus had already warned his disciples that this was a possibility back in chapter nine, verse five. Again, if your Bible's open, we're just looking on the other page. Jesus said this to his 12 when he sent them out. And whenever they do not, wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, 
Shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So here's where reading our Bible broadly is really helpful. Because what we see here is Jesus prepares his disciples and says, if a town ever rejects you, and in this context, actually for preaching the gospel, then shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And here, the Samaritan town has rejected Jesus, not for preaching the gospel, right? It's actually Jesus is just preparing the way. He's saying, hey, go secure lodging. The gospels are being preached there like it was in the beginning of chapter nine. It's just that Jesus is coming and the Samaritans say no. And James and John are like, yeah, we could shake off dust or we could send down hellfire. Let's do that. And remember, they had just failed to cast out a demon. But they are so convinced and so upset that they are ready to just rain down fire from heaven here. And this is what Luke wants us to see. He's drawing our attention to the disproportionate response of the disciples. They are consumed with zeal. Why? Because Jesus was rejected. This isn't a trivial thing, right? We shouldn't read this and be like, well, we should be like the Samaritans and reject Jesus. They did badly. It was to their own detriment that the kingdom of God in the flesh did not get to dwell for a season in their town. But what is seen in the hearts of James and John is that they are driven by a vindictive heart because they are so offended at the arrogance of this Samaritan town that they themselves lose sight of what is going on. Paul in Romans 10 speaks of a zeal for God, but without knowledge. They had a zeal for God, but it was without knowledge. What is that knowledge? That knowledge was the very thing that Jesus had set his faith towards Jerusalem to do. That knowledge is that judgment is real. But because Jesus' face was set towards the cross, so too, for the time being, is the offer of grace. How many times when we're mocked for our faith or our evangelism efforts or scoffed at, do we become agitated or hot under the collar that someone would dare be disgruntled or reject us on account of the cross? And even though we see biblical pictures of this and we see church history dealing well with this, we get frustrated and angry, and we do not want to be seen as the fools. Why? Because we know we are on the right side of history. We are servants of the living and true God. We know that when all is said and done, there are those who are vindicated by Jesus and those who are destined for punishment, and we are not those who are to be punished. And so we get frustrated when we feel that frustration in the time being. We want to be seen as right. We want them to be punished. We want them to be seen as the fools. We want them to see us rightly. Those who reject God will be punished. Those who mistreat the Lord's people and continue in unbelief will reap what they sow. But vindication in this moment does not come by fire falling from the sky, but instead by the son of man being being lifted up on a cross. Our vindication is not being seen as conquerors in the eyes of men. Our vindication is the humility of seeing Christ die on the cross and saying that is for my sins. Judgment will come. That is why Jesus needed to die. Because the wrath of God towards sin, towards your sin, 
is real. But because of the cross, this is also the age of mercy. The truth is each and every one of us in our sins deserve far worse than James and John could have ever imagined. But on account of Jesus and what he was going to do in Jerusalem on that cross, God is allowing those who have rejected him to come to him right now in mercy. You will never be more vindicated than you will be at the cross. You cannot out-affirm what God affirms in you at the cross of Jesus, that you are woefully wicked, but through faith in Jesus Christ, you are lovingly redeemed and robed in his righteousness. We are all in need of mercy. If the hair trigger and first response of our Lord was judgment, then we have no hope. But here Jesus models judgment metered by mercy. Today, in light of the cross, is the day of mercy. You do not know what tomorrow might bring, but today you have it. And here is the offer of mercy in Jesus Christ. If you've never come to faith in Jesus, look at this Jesus who temporarily suspends wrath right now. That God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And that same God who gives you breath right now has promised to hold that wrath off in eternity by absorbing it himself on the cross. If you have not come, come to Jesus. See his work in Jerusalem and take that for yourself for in this is hope. And for those who see that, that hope produces a steadfastness. Despite the fact there was real rejection here, Jesus didn't lose heart. He didn't say, this is too hard. The cost is too great. God, I am the son of God and people are already disbelieving me. They're rejecting me. The resistance is too strong. Get me out of here. Instead, what did he do? He simply went to another village. The disciples were angry and wanted to rain hellfire. Jesus patiently and steadfastly went on to what was next. You see, when we have a theology of a resurrection, we find steadfastness to move forward in the face of any hardship. For even death itself can't stop the progress of the gospel. Dear Christian, do not lose heart even when Bible study, evangelism, and holiness seem to be met with resistance or even rejection in the world. For there is greater gain or for there is gain greater than sorrow held out for us. And because we've seen Jesus' resurrection, we know that that same grace will get us there as well. We are steadfast and not vindictive. And lastly, we view our final scene this morning, and here we see that in light of what is gained in Jesus, disciples are kingdom-motivated and not apathetic. Disciples are kingdom-motivated and not apathetic. Verse 57 says this, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. 
Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So here what we see is perhaps to our Western world, what is one of the most offensive messages Jesus could ever give. But this is important. This is looking at our tape and seeing what we need to see. And what we see here are three would-be disciples, all of whom are wrestling with the idea of following Jesus. This goes back to say there are no greater thoughts you could have of who Jesus is and what you think it looks like to follow Jesus. And what Jesus shows us in this interaction is that following him is more radical than we would initially think. And the first man comes to Jesus and he seems like that radical zealot. He's like, the Samaritans rejected you. You had to go to another village. I'll follow you wherever you want to go. And what's interesting is this man proves to be a really good theologian, but a really poor disciple. He's a good theologian because Jesus doesn't say this. He doesn't say foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, and my followers have nowhere to lay their head. That's not what Jesus says, is it? Jesus says foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And this man is a good theologian. He knows that a disciple is not above his master. He knows if Jesus, the Messiah, would wander this earth as a sort of stranger and sojourner apart from his own home, being here while at the same time feeling out of place, then so too would his life be as a follower of Jesus. And he finds that expectation too much. I wonder if we're sober how many of our expectations of what it means to be a follower of Jesus are shaped by what the Western church has experienced in the last hundred years without ever considering what Jesus' experience was as our Savior? I read this week of a Frenchman who is a believer in church history, but he's also a knight of really noble honor And during this time, it was illegal for him to be a believer, but he was. And so he was put in prison. But because he was such a highly dignified individual in the culture, they didn't put him in chains when they put him in his cell. All of his other co-believers were shackled, and he was not. But the knight responded to his captors, and he said, Spare me not these chains, for it is an honor to belong to a king of the highest order. Following Jesus reshapes your priorities of belonging. It makes you comfortable with the discomfort we experience in the world. And this isn't because we see suffering as good, for there will be no suffering in heaven and everything good will be there. It's not that we seek out suffering but it's that we're reminded that all that suffering takes from us reminds us of what can never be taken from us in the kingdom of God. And it's this kingdom which Jesus now focuses us on in verses 59 through 62. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. 
what we see in these second two potential disciples is not a lack of desire to follow Jesus, but instead the presence of competing desires. Again, if we do Bible study, look, there's an important key word in those two verses. Each of them respond with the word first. They have different priorities of what takes first priority. First, let me bury my father. First, let me say farewell. You see, our problem often is not that we don't have a desire to follow Jesus with firmness, but that we often lack the desire to follow Jesus with our firstness. It's not that Jesus is calling us to not care about death or not care about our family or to not care about those, even non-believers in our world. In fact, if you don't care about those things, you are not being a disciple. But if when push comes to shove, there are other firsts which shape our life of following, then you have missed entirely the weight of what we are laboring for in the kingdom of God. Take, for instance, this funeral, which is a big cultural hoopla in the day. It took lots of planning, lots to execute, lots of social obligations to be there. And Jesus says, don't go bury your father. Go and proclaim the kingdom of God where dead men never die. Why? The world is not for want for another funeral, but the world needs another resurrection. That's the message you have. If all we do is attend funerals, we might look like noble, caring people, but to withhold the promise of life after death, we withhold the very promise of what we're aching for in the presence of death. This promise of eternal hope is what drove Jesus to leave his own father and submit himself to sorrow in his life so that we might know that peace comes afterwards. The last man tried to hold together his old life and his new life, He volunteered. He said, I'll go, but first let me do this. Even though he had already left his home, right? Verse 57, if you glance up, says they were already on the road. He had already left. He already in some way, shape, or form been absent from these people. And he said, I'll follow you only after I return back and finalize some things with my old friends. Though he wanted the new, there was something attractive about the old. They didn't quite want to give up, at least not yet. But this is where Jesus says this in verse 62. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. No one who moves forward towards the kingdom needs to look back. Why? Because there's a kingdom before us. Because there's greater value in where we're going than what we're leaving. We have something better before us. We have something of greater value. I remember my aunt growing up had a, a magnet on her fridge that took me far too long to get the joke of. Um, and it just said, uh, tomorrow's the first day of my diet. And I wonder how many of us hear the call to follow Christ. We hear the call to give up our sinful ways, to change the nature of our relationships, while always and only wanting to start it tomorrow. Something always comes up. There's always a thing we need to go button up There's always a practice that calls us back. There's always a value we want to return to and make sure it's okay. Another English pastor spoke about this when he said this. This is J.C. Ryle. He said, tomorrow is the devil's day, but today is God's. Satan does not care how spiritual your intentions are or how holy your resolutions, if only they are determined to be done tomorrow. Right now, church, In the work of Jesus Christ, you have the certainty of forgiveness if you repent and come to faith in him.
Right now in the reality of historic resurrection, you have the future promise of newness of life. We have the guarantee that what we seem to leave behind in our old life is rags compared to the riches for which we labor in the kingdom of God. That better days await. That greater glory is ahead. And so where does this leave the disciple? Not to meh, and does it fit in my social calendar? It leads our hands to grip firmly the plow, to let our lines be straight, for glory awaits us. This is the life of living in the certainty of a reward which will not be tarnished by the weight of this world. So let us plow. Let us with humble hearts, laden with the name of Jesus, prize what Jesus himself prized and know that his gain by faith is our gain. I wanna close today with Paul's words. I get to be the chaplain for the football team and I always wrestle like, what do I do? Do I just like do rah, 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 go fight, kill, something like that, I don't know. Uh, Weird things that go through my mind. But this, this is the pregame speech of the gospel. This is what seeing this film and understanding our mistakes leads us to pursue heartily. Consider Paul's words of encouragement to you as we close today. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. That's humility. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that in this room today, you might reveal to us the otherwises of our hearts. That in seeing the mistakes of these men, we might correct what is awry in our own hearts, set our hands to the plow, and applaud forward even when the earth is hard. Give us eyes for your glory that therefore finds the exclusive privilege of boasting in your name and not our own. Make us humble servants for heaven that are salt and light to this world. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.